church, and you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. As we continue our summer series, Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read verses 1 and 2 for right now. We'll kind of lean into the rest of it together. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, can we read that? Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. God, and I pray that we never forget, never take for granted the fact that sinful man gets the opportunity to gather together in one place worship a worthy God. And God, that you tell us that our worship, when it is pure of heart and dedicated to you, not for our own selfish gain, God, that it is an incense, Lord, that it rises up, that is acceptable to you. Father God, I am so thankful that, that your word tells us, Lord, that you're not after offerings, God. You're not after what we can give you, God. You're just after our hearts. You're after our love, our obedience, our devotion. God, our willingness to be used by you. So Father God, I thank you for, Lord, using us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us the opportunity to see you for who you are and what you want to do for us and in us and through us in our lives. God, we love you. God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, church, again, just thank you for being here. And, you know, we're going to continue in this series in Matthew chapter 7. As we're talking about, you know, we've titled it, How'd You Hear It? Understanding Misunderstood Scripture. And, you know, as you'll see, as we go through these texts and as we go through the next several weeks, we're going to kind of highlight some things. And so as we kind of were reading that verse, I know for a fact that you've heard it said or you've said this maybe even yourself this idea that you have no right to judge me, right? That is something very common, very, uh, very frequent that we hear. And, uh, you know, a lot of times the way that we kind of see this play out is it's kind of the trump card uh, to push against anyone bringing a critique or correction against us, right? And this is the funny thing about this verse is this verse is commonly used not only by Christians, but it is also used by the non-Christian world. Um, they, a lot of times will use it against Christians to say, well, you don't have a right to judge Judge me for who I am, what I do, how I believe, and how I want to do it or live it. And, uh, and so in a lot of ways, and I've seen this on the back of vehicles, I've seen this on bumper stickers, I've seen this tattooed on people. You know, th- things like this that say, only God can judge me, right? Have you heard it, seen it, said it? Maybe it's been said to you, only God can judge me. You know, but the thing about it is when we really take into consideration what that phrase means for the sayer, You know, for the individual, for the person that's, if it's been you, if it's been someone that said it to you, the reality of this statement reveals very little about the understanding about God's relationship to mankind, right? Because I don't know about you, but in the state at which we are naturally born into, the sinful state we are in, what does the Bible tell us? For the wages of sin is what? Death. And so, you know, and... The thing about it is in our natural status as sinful man, our verdict has already been given. 
The judgment has already been made. You know, another verse that we're going to talk about a little bit further down, John 3.16 and John 3.17, is, you know, he tells us, he says, listen, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. We, by nature, are already judged. We are born into the, 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 the status of our father Adam, right? Our fleshly father Adam. So we are born into sin. We are born bearing the condemnation and the judgment that's already been applied to sin. The wages of sin is death, separation from a holy God. And so the thing is, when we say things like only God can judge me, I don't think we really understand the gravity of that statement. Like we don't want God to judge us where we are. Right? We don't want God's judgment because God can't accept sin. God can't be okay with sin and unholiness. It has to be away from Him. There's no place within Him or around Him. It has to be cast away. And so when we say things like only God can judge me as an individual or someone saying it to us, we're misunderstanding the relationship between God and man. Because what we're asking for is we're asking for God's judgment on sinful man. In church, we desperately don't want that. Not in the status at which we are born into. And what it also reveals, when we're dealing in these interpersonal relationships, when we say it or when someone says it to us, you have no right to judge me in the context at which that conversation typically happens, is what it also shows is we're misunderstanding the role that we play in each other's lives, right? And listen... In all of these instances, and even in talking about this verse in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, is I'm not saying that these things haven't been used and abused to a certain extent. But just because, you know, I was having a conversation this past week about church and things, and it's like just because something is mishandled or just because something is not done right or just because something has hurt us, it doesn't take value away from it, Right. It doesn't take value just because maybe we've been hurt by the church or used or abused by scriptures that have been misused. It doesn't make the church or God's word any less valuable to us in the things that it calls us to, in the way it calls us to live. And so, you know, in all these instances, when we go through these texts, the main thing that I want to do is I want to embrace the context to see the deeper truth about what God wants to do, can do, and will do in the midst of it. How God wants to use us. How God wants to take the truths of these verses and reveal them to us for our growth, for our development, how we engage in that with each other. So kind of looking at the context of this verse, what we see here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, really Matthew chapter 7, is we're seeing Jesus wrapping up a sermon, what would be probably the longest of Jesus' sermons that they speculate lasted several days. Uh, not only kind of the length of it, but really just the profoundness of his teachings where he's really, and, and I really want to encourage you, and I'm hoping that going into this next kind of going into the fall or even into next year that we'll do a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've done it in the past at other places, but you know, I, there's just so much here. Matthew chapter 5 verse uh, through Matthew chapter 7, there's just so much there about the Christian life. I really want to encourage you to go back and read that maybe this week. Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. Where Jesus, he, he's, he's got his disciples kind of pulled close to him. 
Because if these truths need to be preached to anyone first, it's God's people need to embrace these things and be clear about these things. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, but he's teaching it in a space where a multitude of people can hear it. You know, they call it Sermon on the Mountain, where they anticipate that Jesus did or say that Jesus did this was in a place where his voice would have echoed. So many people would have been able to kind of hear and be a part of it. And so He's not only teaching his disciples, but he's teaching a multitude of people what it means to look like and live like a Christian. And so when we begin to read, when we begin to read Matthew chapter one, verses uh, uh, Matthew chapter seven, verses one through two, we can see, you know, he obviously says here, he says, judge not that you not be judged. But then he continues on and he says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And so the thing that we need to be clear on here is that there is an element here where it's so much more than just don't judge me. Right. There's so much more here than just don't judge me. In fact, it would seem as if there is some sort of invitation to judgment. But what we have to be clear on is what are we talking about when we talk about judgment? You know, what are we what are we speaking about when we're talking about this idea of judgment? Because and, and we'll talk about this a little bit further on, but the consideration is in the measure of our judgment. Not in the lack of judgment, but it's in the measure or the type of or the gravity at which we measure the judgment. And so what we have to be clear on is what are we talking about judgment? So anytime the Bible, told, remember the Bible uses words that we know in place of where in a different language there may have been a lot of different words to describe a different type of outlook on that particular word. But so a lot of times when the Bible talks about judgment, it's speaking of a verdict, right? Giving a verdict, to something. Guilty, not guilty. That is judgment. But then there are other spaces at which the Bible talks about judgment where it's not talking about giving a verdict, but it's talking about a judgment in a sense of analyzing something or evaluating something. And so what this verse is calling Christians to consider is their evaluation and analyzation of each other. Okay, this is not saying not to do those things, but it's telling us how to do those things. And that's the difference. So like what we have to be clear on is that this isn't this isn't not telling us to analyze, but it's making sure how that process uh, happens and according to God's way, because. What I truly believe and what, what this, the context of this verse would tell us, because when you look back, you know, when a lot of people think about don't judge me, typically it's in response to or criti criticizing us or some type of critique or trying to redirect or correct us. And so when we hear that and our initial reaction is, well, you don't have a right to say that to me. What we have to understand is when the Bible says, judge not yet you be judged, like he's telling us not to judge each other in a way of giving verdicts, but... Even though we don't make verdicts, we do make assessments, right? Scripture is clear on that. Scripture calls us to that. And that's that role at which we play with each other as Christians, where we step into each other's lives and we are called to analyze, to, to discern. We are called to see each other's lives, how we're living, and, and be a part of that process with each other. Because we're not called to, to make verdicts. I mean, the Bible is very clear that there is a finality to verdicts. And we don't have, hold that type of power or authority. So I don't have the right to condemn someone. I don't have the right to, to call someone to, to give them a, a verdict. I don't have a right to say, well, you're guilty. 
I don't have that right. I don't have that power. I'm not the ultimate judge. Only God is. But in the midst of that judgment that speaks more to analyzing or evaluating, there is something that God has called us to do. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 15 and 16. You can kind of see this play out a little bit. I'm going to knock my thing off here. You can see this play out a little bit. In verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So we see there that what Jesus is calling us to, because he's teaching on it a little bit further down, he's calling us to analyze. He's calling us to be aware of how people are living. And so being aware of how people are living isn't casting a verdict. Being aware of, and he's talking about false prophets, so he's talking about people who present themselves as religious people. So this is being aware of, analyzing, evaluating the life of someone who calls themselves a follower of God. And so does that verse, can we evaluate someone's fruits by not judging them in that sense? No, we can't. There has to be an element of judgment, of evaluation, of analyzation. This is, he's not casting verdicts when he's telling us to do this. He's telling us to discern, to evaluate. So there is a, a context at which he invites us into that. And listen, before this, Jesus is teaching on all kinds of things that would have been very, uh, very upfront, very in their face. I mean, he's calling them to be salt and light. He's calling them to live out. He's, he's teaching on anger, lust, divorce, uh, taking oaths and swearing. He's talking about loving your enemies. So like he's challenging them leading up to this point and how they live as Christians. And so for Christians... To engage with each other in a critiquing, redirecting type of way is not judgment. So to say that you don't have a right to judge me because you're telling me something that I'm doing wrong is not, is not an accurate statement. It's not accurate to say that we can't do that for each other. God has called us to do that for each other. Now, is there a particular way that we do that for each other? Absolutely. And I believe that that's what the rest of this tells us. It tells us how to do that. How do we, how do we evaluate? How do we judge each other in a sense in the way at which God has called us to? And I think he tells us that as we move on. Because what I believe, and if I could sum it all up in, in one thing, it would be this, that he can mold us through godly judgment when done in his way. He can mold us through that. That's what he's created us and he's placed us within the context of this relationship with each other so that we can complement each other in a way where we help each other fill in the gaps with each other where things are missing, where we need someone from the outside like, like, like David needed in his day when he was sinning and he had the prophet came to him and he said, David, he told him a story about a man who was sinning, had done some sinful things. And David, David gave a judgment kind of an analysis about what that person was doing and how it was wrong. And then the prophet said, David, that's you. That person is you. We need those people in our life that step in because sometimes when we're in the midst of sin, when we're in the midst of this comfortable kind of pet sin that we live with or this lifestyle, or whatever it might be that we're doing, Sometimes we don't see it. We're blind to it. We're numb to it. Or we've just become so accustomed to it. This is just life. This is just how I live. This is just how I function. Sometimes we need someone. Maybe that's our spouse. Maybe that's a friend. Maybe that's somebody in our small group or whatever it might be that leans into our life and says, hey, you need better than this. You, you are worth more than this. This thing that you're giving yourself over to is robbing you of the joy that God has for you. We need that. And that's not judgment in the sense of casting a verdict. That's judgment in a sense of analyzing and evaluating our brother or sister in Christ's life and saying, hey, 
This needs to change. But there's a way at how that works. And so the first way at which how that works is this, that he calls us to evaluate our motive for our assessment. This is important. This is where it all has to begin. Before we have that conversation, before we lean into the life of someone else, we have to do this. We have to evaluate our motive for our assessment. What does he say in verse 2? He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And so he's calling us to consider our motive. Like, what is the measure? What is the way in which you're going about this? Because the thing about it, you know, especially considering the fact, you know, if we're calling ourselves a judge in the sense of the evaluation and the understanding of the situation, what he's telling us is that everyone deserves a fair, fair trial. Right? He's telling us everyone deserves an empathetic approach and consideration of their situation and their circumstances. You know, so when we approach someone who we know, maybe it's our spouse or a friend or somebody at work, whatever it might be, and we're feeling God kind of pulling us towards that, that he calls us very first and foremost to consider the motive. Consider the motive and the reason at which you are stepping into this conversation because that motive or that reason is going to be applied back to you. So, you know, if it's based out of selfishness, if it's based out of anger, you know, because sometimes we do things or say things out of anger. Like if someone's hurt us through their sin, then we feel this, this need to discipline them in their sin. But it's not driven by a heart that wants to see them be better. It's driven by a heart that's mad at them, right? We've been in those spaces before. Where somebody has sinned against you and now you feel like you need to hold them accountable for their sin. But it's not driven by your love for them. It's driven because you're mad at them. We have to stop. Consider the measure. Do we want that measure applied back to us? Do we want that type of mindset applied back to us? You know, Matthew uh, chapter 6 verses 14 and 15. It says this. It's for if you, this is in the Sermon on the Mount also. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So he's telling us, he says, listen, if you have this very boxed in, narrow approach to how you're dealing with someone, then you are welcoming that same boxed in, narrow, unempathetic, unsympathetic, unmindful approach to yourself. You know, and I've said this before. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says that I forgive the inexcusable in others because Christ, God in Christ Jesus has forgiven the inexcusable in me. And so listen, we have to be able to enter into these spaces with this kind of open-handed approach to like, God, I want to do this. I feel this need to step into my brother or sister's life, but help me go about it the right way. Help it not be driven by any selfish motive. Because the question we have to start with when we get into these situations, when we begin to assess our fellow Christian or, or anyone else for that matter, is our motive. Is it for their good? Is it for ours? Are we trying to acknowledge the things out of concern and Christian love, seasoned with grace and mercy? Or does, our, or, or does our calling out someone else's mess make me feel better about my own? Right? Because sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it helps us deal with our own sin or hide our own sin or pretend like our own sin doesn't exist as it does by telling someone else what they're doing wrong, right? It's a lot easier to do that. It's a lot easier to do that, which brings me to the next point, the next part of this. Not only does he call us to evaluate our own motives for our assessment, but the second thing is this, that he calls us to start with our own sin 
He calls us to start with our own sin before we deal with others. And this is a very, very vital element of this kind of attitude of accountability when we're stepping into this space with each other. Like I said, maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's with a friend, maybe it's with a child, whatever it might be. Even in parenting, I think we should do this. Evaluate our own sin before we deal with the sin of others. And so what does he say in verse 3? And we'll read down, we'll read down to verse 5. He says, Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so the thing about it is we have to understand, you know, a lot of times when this verse is referenced, this reference is like, you have no right to deal with me. You're not supposed to deal with me because you have your own mess. So stay out of my mess. But the Bible is very clear here that, yes, you do need to acknowledge your own sin and we'll kind of get to this moving forward a little bit further down but there is a process at which the clearing needs to happen so that work can happen on the other end but it starts with me acknowledging my own mess acknowledging the things that I'm struggling with I love the focus here because he, he, he says here he says but do you see the speck that is in your own eyes uh, wait why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye because listen when our eyes are so externally focused on the mess that everyone else is going on we can miss law and, and I love how I mean obviously if you had a log in your eye you know I love the illustration here it seems like it would be impossible to miss like so obvious like there is something massive I mean I don't know I don't, I don't know about you but I don't imagine a log being something like a twig that's like sticking out like I literally imagine like a giant tree protruding from my face and I'm like there's no way that that we wouldn't notice that, that we wouldn't be affected by that. But what does he say here is that there is a possibility for someone to have a log in their eye and live life as if they don't know it's there. Listen, we can have some detrimental, devastating sin in our lives and completely ignore it and live every single day like it's not going to affect me. Like, it, it's not going to hinder my life. Like, I can live with this. I can deal with other stuff. I can raise my children. I can go to work. I can have friends. I can go to church and, and not deal with this. Like, I, I don't need to deal with this. But he's telling us here that before we can do anything, before we can deal with anyone spiritually in any way, we have to acknowledge we have to acknowledge the log in our life. We have to acknowledge those things. And this is where it all, it all has to start here. As Christians, as Christian parents, as Christian spouses, as Christian workers, we have to acknowledge and recognize the sin in our lives. We have to be honest about it because we cannot do anything clearly. And I love how near the end of that in verse five, he talks about seeing clearly, a clarity. We cannot have a clarity in our life until we acknowledge the sin that's distorting it. We have to be clear about that. You know, and in a lot of ways, when Jesus is saying this, he's talking to religious people. 
You know, he's talking to people who are de in dealing with religious leaders of the day who were casting condemnation on others, giving verdicts rather than sanctifying with redirection. And listen, it's very easy as Christians to find ourselves in this place because the hypocrisy of the religious elite is that their evaluation was unbalanced. And that's, just, that's what God hates. God hates unbalanced scales. He talks about that a lot through Proverbs. He talks about how much that the, the scales need to be level and how we deal with each other, how we see each other, that God is not a respecter of person, that it is not about our status, it is not about how much we have or who we are. But it's about dealing with each other equally and how we look at things and how we navigate that and talks about this unbalanced. And what they did is they neglected to apply the same evaluation to themselves. And this is where the Christian judgment has to start. It is with our own, our own judgment, our own evaluation, our own assessment of ourselves. And what does he tell us in Matthew 7, 5? He says, first take the log out of your own eye. There's an active movement that has to happen in our lives, a taking out, a, a, a grabbing a hold. I mean, and, and listen, I can't imagine, you know, kind of elaborating on the illustration. I can't imagine that pulling a log out of your own eye is something that's easy. I don't think I could do it on my own either. I think I would need the help of someone else around me. And I think that's something else to this. There's a vulnerability to this. First off, acknowledging that the log or that the sin is there. But secondly, acknowledging that I can't remove this on my own. That I desperately need someone else in my life to lean in, to grab a hold, to expose it, to let others see. Because the thing is, is and if we're honest with ourselves, and this is where it's like that carousel of like, you can't judge me. It's like people probably see the log. They probably know it. And if the people around us don't know it, especially if you're married, your spouse probably knows it. And for a long time, there may be instances, I know I've lived this in my own life, where we neglect to see the evaluation, the assessment of the spouse in our life that loves us and cares about us, but we're so prideful that we don't want to acknowledge that there's something messy in our life we don't want to deal with. Until it gets to the point where it begins to sabotage us from the inside out. You know, so he tells us, take the log out of your own eye. There's an active action that happens, and 90% of the time, it's not going to be something you can do on your own. Not only do we need God in our life to help us to remove those things that are so massive, that are so distracting, that are so distorting our minds and our hearts and our, and our walk with God. Not only will we need him, but we will desperately need someone else. We'll need people in our lives that help us grab a hold to begin to apply that pressure. And, and like I said, and I also can't imagine that it is a painless process. I mean, I went pulling a splinter out of my finger. I can't imagine pulling a log out of my, like we said, hypothetical, we're illustrating, we're elaborating on the illustration. You take it too far and it kind of loses its application. But, you know, they're, they're just I'm trying to imagine that and apply that in our lives. Man, it's just so monumental for me because the thing is, I read this quote this week and I just thought it was so awesome. It is easier to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one sin of our own. Man, there's so much truth to that. It is so hard to acknowledge that we have issues. It is so hard to acknowledge that there is something that is deteriorating me from the inside, that is clouding up my heart, that is clouding up my judgment. It's affecting the way I see my spouse. It's affecting the way I live in the world around me. It's affecting the way that I engage in worship and prayer and, and, and devotion. And the reality of it is, 
is that it's hard for us to kill our own sin because too often we're afraid to engage it and evaluate it because we're afraid to acknowledge that it's real, right? We're afraid to bring light to it because we know if we acknowledge it, then we're acknowledging that God sees it and acknowledges it. And then if we acknowledge it and God acknowledges it, and then maybe other people know it. And then for me to deal with it, it's going to have to be seen or known to some extent. And so there's this fear about what's known. There's this fear about what's seen. But the Bible is very clear that until we move this out of the way, we can't bring clarity. We can't bring clarity to others without clearing our own eyes and so there's something that has to happen and it has to start in my heart and in my mind and in my own life. And this is not a natural inclination of humankind. We are not naturally inclined to acknowledge our weaknesses. Our natural state is I am good. I'm fine. Things are great. We know how to put on a show in that regard. We know how to pretend like everything is fine. And then we question why after a a period of time that things just fall apart. John MacArthur said this, he said, People are not naturally inclined to look at themselves honestly, to perform a self-evaluation under the bright and perfect light of God's Word. They know instinctively that their pride, self-will, and love of sin will be exposed under the Lord's righteous standards. And this is a space at which we cannot be afraid to let see. Because what I love, and, and Proverbs talks about this, that whatever we uncover, God covers up. That whatever we uncover, whatever we acknowledge, whatever we are honest about, God will cover up. The Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sin. And that's the same with God's love and grace and mercy in our life. That when we begin personally to expose the sin and acknowledge the sin and acknowledge the reality of what's happening in our life or the sin that's overtaken us, the things that reign over us, God will begin to do the work in our lives to cover that up. The more we dig up, the deeper He buries it. And the more honest we are, the further we get away from it ruling us, the further we get away from it taking control of us and us being a servant to it. Because the reality, and and this is what God's called us to in in Mark chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. He says, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to put under a basket or under a bed or or not on a stand for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And listen, the thing about it is, and I say this to myself all the the time, I try to say this to others in conversation, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he outed every single one of us. Christ didn't just die for me and he didn't just die for you. He died for all of us. And what did that do? It acknowledged that every single one of us had sin that needed to be died for. We're not tricking God. God knows. God's seen. Jesus outed us as sinners in desperate need of saving the moment he died on the cross. So the thing that we need to stop doing is we need to stop hiding the fact that we have things that need to be dealt with. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before this time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Listen, if we don't do it, we can guarantee that Christ will. That who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Listen, there's nothing that's hidden from God. God sees, God knows. Romans 14.10 Why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so remember, I mean, this is Paul obviously talking to the religious leap, but it's, an, uh, it's a reminder to us that in what we are trying to hide, that there will, there is a time at which God is going to bring to light everything that we're dealing with, everything that we're navigating, everything we're trying to hide. James 5, 9, but it's more, there's more value, there's more purpose, there's more beauty to it when we begin to deal with it, deal with it with God, and then finding people that we trust in our lives to begin to have conversations through these things, to have that other person to help us pull the log from our eye and to be able to bring clarity to our lives so that we can move into other people's lives and bring clarity to theirs. James 5.9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. It says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Listen. There's nothing that we can hide, or if not that, if maybe we feel like we're hiding it now, eventually there's going to come a time where we're going to have to face it one way or the other. We're going to have to face our sin one way or the other. And the thing that we don't want is we don't want to miss out on clarity in our life because we're afraid to deal with the sin now. When God tells us, He tells us in His Word that He has given us His grace and His mercy to begin to work through those things, to begin to remove the logs from our eye. Not only that He has given us that, but then moving on to the last part of this, He's given us each other. And that our calling, the last thing, third thing is this, that our calling is for correction and redirection. God has called us to be a part of the process of each other's lives. What it doesn't give us is it doesn't give us free reign to shame or condemn because we do not cast verdicts. We give assessments, Right? We give evaluations and we communicate those findings to each other. You know what? And sometimes we may be wrong and we need to be okay with that. But if we're honestly doing, starting by evaluating our motives, moving on to acknowledging our own sin, God has very clearly called us to be stepping into each other's lives, to be correcting and redirecting. For what? For growth. For the goal of giving our, our assessment and evaluation for the good and the growth and the redirection of other people. The worst thing that we can do is ignore, ignore sinful, habitual behavior in each other. Because God has called each of us to be tools for each other. Me and my wife, we are tools for each other. For accountability, we are for, for godly living. I'm that for my children. They are that for me. You are that for each other. We as a church are that for each other. We are meant to be that element of accountability and these tools of redirection that God has given us to each other to be. Proverbs 25, uh, 27, 17, he says, Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. That we are meant to you know, and, and, and I love that illustration of the iron and all that because it's, it's, going to, it's going to be confrontational sometimes, right? Like it's, it's not going to feel great. It's not going to be always a happy-go-lucky moment when we lean in and not everyone's going to receive it. You know, sometimes we lean into life and we tell each other, you know, we call each other out. We say, you know, something that we're seeing, something that's, that's happening in the life of each other. And sometimes the other person, maybe they get mad. Maybe they push us away. Maybe they don't talk to us. But I'm going to say this to you, you know, because there have been things in, in my own life, and, and I know even other people coming to me and having things to say, that it would have been much, much, much easier to ignore 
But I know for a fact, whether it's for myself or in me talking to someone else, that down the road, if it wasn't dealt with now, under the umbrella of someone who loves them, someone who cares for them, someone who has their best intentions at heart, someone who has considered their motive, someone who has considered their own sin and then leaned into the life of someone else and been able to help them draw out something that's going on in their own life, then down the road, there would have been destruction. And that me as an individual or that person to me would have said, if I would have just said something, if I would have out of the love that I have for them would have leaned into their life and said something to them, maybe we could have avoided this. You know, and, and at last week, as we were talking about some things that even reminded me, you know, the thing that we have to understand, you know, and a lot of people in a lot of churches don't like this idea. And I'm very thankful for us as a church that we've been able to navigate this and seeing good come from it. But a lot of people don't we don't we don't like the idea of confrontation and we don't like the idea of church discipline. Like we don't like the idea of holding people accountable to sin. But the Bible speaks clearly to it. But there's a process to it and there's a desire within the midst of it. I mean, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And this is conflict resolution and church discipline just spelled out in these verses. And there's a purpose to it. There's a process to it. And he says in verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And so there's this purposeful personal evaluation that if someone has sinned or you've seen sin or that sin's happened to you, that the first thing you do, you don't go complain about it to someone else. You don't go have a conversation. You don't text someone else about it. You don't go and have, uh, you know, go get your hair done. You don't go out and eat. You don't go do whatever. Go to someone else's house and you go in them to say, hey, so-and-so did this. Do you know what so-and-so did or what so-and-so did to me or what so-and-so did to someone else? That's not how that works. That if someone has sinned or sinned against you, you go to to them. This is the problem in a lot of churches sometimes that happens when someone, and in a lot, it even happens from the top up. Uh, the, the leader, or the pastor, preacher, elder, whatever does something to someone else. They don't ever usually go to that person. They go and complain about it to someone else. Where I'm telling you, I hate, and I hate to say the word hate, and I'm, 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 I'm telling you, I do, I despise to my core when and, and I've, I've been victim to it. And that's why for us as a church and dealing with other people, I always tell them, you've got a problem with this person, go to them. Don't sit around and fester on it. Don't complain about it to other people because it's cancerous and it's going to do nothing but destroy you and destroy every relationship you have that is connected to this situation. Deal with it. Talk about it. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be weird. And you may not even agree on it. But even in the conversation, even in a disagreement, when you face things honestly, there's a process that starts. Even if nothing else, a mutual agreement to agree to disagree, but our hearts are in the right place. If someone is sending against you, what does he say? He says, go to them. The next thing he says is if they don't listen, you don't dis dismiss them. You don't, you don't go and complain about it to someone else. What do you do? You'll go get someone else and you go back to them. Because maybe they need an outside party to come in. This is dealing with people, bringing about redirection, bringing about conflict resolution, wanting to see restoration, where the easier thing in this process is to dismiss people. Because it's easier. It's a lot less work. It's a lot less heartbreaking. That it, it, if someone sins against us or sins around us or sins to us or sins in the midst of something that we're responsible for, it's easier just to say, I'm done. It's easy to write people off. It is so easy to say, I'm done. You've, you've hurt me. You've, done, you've disrespected me. You've sinned against me, whatever it might be. It is easy 
to write people off. But it takes more courage. It takes more strength to lean into those uncomfortable situations and to say, listen, I've been hurt. I've been hurt by you. Not, and listen, we have to evaluate our motive, evaluate our own sin, and then step into that situation. Hopefully by that time we've recognized and weeded out if there's selfishness involved in it or pride, where I'm saying this is all for my own good and I'm just wanting you to acknowledge and be held accountable for what you've done. It is not our job to make people be accountable for the mess they've made. God will do that. But we can enter into spaces of conflict and say, hey, I've been hurt by this. And, and I want you to hear it and I want to work through it. Because the goal with sin and dealing with people who have sinned either against you or sinned around you is we want to see resolution. Like we want to see restoration. We want to see redemption, reconciliation. And if that is not our goal, then we are missing it. In the midst of the church, if someone has sinned in the church from leadership down, our desire should always be reconciliation. Should there be church discipline? Absolutely. Sometimes do people need to step aside or step back from certain situations? Absolutely, because it could be clouding or keeping them from really growing or moving. But our desire should always be reconciliation. Because, you know, and I've always been under the impression, and I think I've said this, I think I said this last week, that people are better off under our care than they are being cast out into the world. When people have sinned, the worst place for them to be is out there. Unfortunately, the, the culture the church creates, sometimes that's not the case. But the way it's supposed to be is the church should be the place for healing and redemption and recovery. This is where that's supposed to happen, right? This is where that's supposed to happen. And so he talks about conflict resolution. And then he goes on. He says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, after even telling the church, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector. Calling sin, sin. Call it what it is. We have to do that. Then it's, there's a necessity of accountability that's there. And then in Romans 14, 13, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of the brother. Our desire is redirection and restoration. Just don't put a stumbling block. Don't, don't hinder people's process of growth and redemption. And so I want to end it like this. As we kind of are, are wrapping our mind around this and as the, the group kind of comes up and we get ready to worship to end with this morning. But the thing we have to remember is this and the reminder that a faithful servant of God will see himself as he sees others. He will recognize his own sinfulness and need for God's mercy, a need he shares with his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he will have no reason to consider himself better than others, but will follow Paul's teaching from Philippians 2, 3. This is how we deal with each other. This is how we enter into those relationships. And I love Paul's illustration and the way he says this in Philippians 2, 3. What does he say? He says, do nothing, do nothing, Church, do nothing. Don't do conflict resolution. Don't do church discipline. Don't do redirection. Don't do accountability. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, rather, and this is the key. This is the key to how we do it, why we do it, and what our goal and desire is in the midst of it. Rather, in humility, humility, value others above yourself. Value others above yourselves. 
Church, everything we do, when we deal with judgment, evaluation, assessment, redirection, we enter into the life of our brother or sister in Christ and we call out something that is sinful that may have them entangled. It has to be done in a way. And this is the key. Value others above yourselves and let them know that. They need to know that your motive is that you love them, that you care for them, and you enter into it with this humility of, I am not perfect. I am not coming to you because I have it all figured out, but I am coming to you as a loving brother or sister in Christ to tell you that there is something that I see in your life that maybe it's affected me or maybe I've seen it affect other people around us that if it isn't dealt with, it will destroy you have to be able to have those honest conversations with each other because God has called us to be used as those tools for that. Church, humility is the theme in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through chapter 7. And it is the approach, it is the key to this growth in our lives. And so the challenge for us is this this morning. I'm going to work, I'm going to work backwards. That the first thing is this that we acknowledge that we have a calling to hold each other accountable, that we have a calling to lean into the lives of each other for redirection, for redemption, for growth, for correction. God has called us to those things. But the way that we accomplish that, the way we accomplish that is number one, we evaluate our motives. What is my motive for calling out the sin of my brother or sister in Christ, my spouse, my child, whatever it might be, what is the motive? Our motive has to be as Paul said in Philippians 2.3, that in humility we value others more than ourselves. That I want to see good for you. I want to see good for you. Not to see good for me, not to make me feel better about my mess, but to see good for you because I love you and I want to see better for you. So not only do we evaluate our motives, but then we evaluate our own sin. We acknowledge the logs in our eye and we take them out. We take action to remove them from our lives, which requires what? It requires vulnerability. It requires acknowledging it. And it requires bringing someone else into our lives. Not only God, but someone else. Being receiving of the correction that our brothers and sisters can offer us. So as we kind of move into this space of worship, I'd ask you to do this. Bow your head with me close your eyes as we pray and we ask God to give us the strength and courage it takes to be honest about the sin that we're dealing with in our lives so that we can have clarity to deal with the sin in the lives of those we love and care about or people who have sinned against us so that we can deal with it in a way that is not prideful, that is not sinful, and that desires to see restoration and reconciliation whether it's in a relationship between people and a husband and wife or in a friendship or in a family space that we would want to see restoration. That has to be our desire and our motive. So let us pray. Father God, we thank you. God, we thank you for this opportunity that you give us and the example that you have given us in the gospel of Jesus Christ that as sinful humanity, you gave us a way. God, you gave us a way for restoration. You gave us a way for redemption and reconciliation. And that's in acknowledging our own sin and receiving what it is you have for us. Father, and I pray that as we enter into the lives of other people, Father God, that you would allow us to honestly evaluate our own sin, our own motives. But God, giving us the strength and the courage it takes to be the people for each other you've called us to be a necessity of accountability. That God, you have not called us to give out verdicts, but you have called us to analyze and evaluate and to redirect, to be a part of correction.
to be a part of the restoration and redemption of each other. God, that's why you have put broken people together to support each other, to bear the burden with each other and to to love each other in that way, to love each other towards the right path, to love each other towards the right space. God, that we would be welcoming. God, I pray for us to be welcoming of correction and humility. God, I pray that we would be welcoming of the evaluation and be calling out to our brothers and sisters, God, tell me what I'm doing wrong so that I can do it better. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the humility that can only come through you, Lord. We love you, God. We thank you, Lord. Let us sing and worship you in truth and spirit here today, God. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name.